Welcome to The Unexplained Truths. Stories of life, healing, and unexplained events. We're your hosts. I'm Julie. And I'm Genevieve. And on this show, we will explore and uncover the hidden truths about life, healing, and unexplained events with our guests through real life stories. So get ready to be educated, enlightened, and inspired by our guests through their stories. And today, we will be talking with Nitin Ron. Nitin was born in Mumbai, India. He is a pediatrician and tell me how to pronounce that. Neonatologist. There you go. A baby doctor. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, loves high altitude hiking and mountaineering. He is an associate professor of pediatrics and assistant director of the neonatal intensive care unit at NYP Brooklyn Methodist Hospital and has been in practice for over two decades, having done his fellowship in neonatal prenatal perinatal medicine. <laughs> medicine from Brown University, Rhode Island, where his research field was neonatal neuroscience. He has just finished the draft of his book titled The Science of Pranayama, which he is co-authoring with his dad, And he has given three TED Talks and has been leading a research project in the Himalayas, including the Mount Everest region, involving ultrasound of the eye and the body, the neurocognitive function studies to predict mountain sickness. His research also involves studying the effect of meditation and pranayama in acclimatizing the body to high altitude. He also volunteers as an art guide at the Rubin Museum of Himalayan Art in New York City as a reminder that medicine is so much of an art as well as a science. He has been an invited speaker at the National Institute of Health, Bethesda, Maryland, where he presented his research findings regarding the Mindfulness and Mountain Sickness Project and spoke about the neuroscience behind meditation. You gave me a run for my money there. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for being here. Can I just ask you to explain to our audience uh, exactly what you do? I know you're doing like a million projects, but what you do for your career and how and why you got into doing what you do. I am a neonatologist, Mm -hmm. a newborn and premature baby specialist. It's essentially a specialization of pediatrics. So you do medical school, you do pediatric residency, and then fellowship in newborn medicine. And then you graduate in that field. It's been a great journey ever since I was really tiny. Not that I'm much taller than that now. (laughs) I always, always wanted to be a doctor. So getting into med school was one of the happiest days of my life. And the journey has been absolutely incredible. And I find that babies are the best. They are absolutely fantastic. And so it's really, really cool for me to be able to heal them. Much more than just healing babies, it's really wonderful to see the spark of joy in the mother's eyes when you're handed a baby with no heart rate, not breathing, you do the right things, the right resuscitation, and then you give the baby back to the mother, crying and pink, She'll snatch the baby back from you. But before she goes for the baby, she'll give you that one look of utter gratitude and surrender. And that one look is worth the 15 years that you spend in med school and in fellowship, not for any egotistical or arrogant reason, but just because 
I have the capacity to bring a spark of joy in somebody else's eyes. Bring and that is worth to everything life. to me. Absolutely. And it's so incredible. Many times I feel I'm just so lucky to be in a position where I can help babies. And you know the coolest thing about little babies? They might be born with no heart rate, not breathing. You're there, you do the right resuscitation. Within 60 seconds from a dead baby, you have a baby with a normal heart rate, pink, crying, and screaming. Adults would never do that. We have a headache and we complain. Whereas <laughs> babies are one of That's the strongest true. little things on earth. So it, it's very gratifying and it's really incredible. Yeah. You really don't even need to be paid for things like this. Yeah. However, right. I'm not going to say that aloud <laughs> <laughs> too <laughs> openly, <laughs> which I just did, Don't put that out there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's a very rewarding job. What inspired you to want to do that with your life? Being of help to others is something I've always wanted to do ever since I was a child. But this is a great secret, which I have actually never let out, except in this Ooh. company now, is oh, the deepest is secret is I hate mathematics. Oh my God, I suck at it. And my dad is an atomic scientist, and my mom is a mathematician. Yeah. And the only way I could get out of math forever and ever was to go into med school. So <laughs> I absolutely love to tell people, yes, it is love, compassion, kindness, which it is, and the capacity for serving other people. But as a kid for me, the biggest thing was I would never have to solve one single problem of integral or differential calculus or trigonometry again. <laughs> right. And that was probably one of the bigger uh, stimuli as well. Yeah. But having said that, in a serious way, and I absolutely love what I do. It's little babies, and yeah. you know, you can be there for them. Yeah. And that's what makes it very gratifying and a very, very wonderful science for me to practice. Can I ask you, when I, the first time I heard you speak, you were talking about being in flow. And you talked about being in flow in the work that you do. And I loved the way that you explained it. Do you mind touching on that a little bit? Absolutely. It's interesting because the classic flow is where you have the good stress and then you have the performance and it has to come together where you have enough stress to perform correctly and love what you're doing without burning out. And this is the classic flow state or the Yerkes Dobson curve and you have to reach the top of the curve to reach the perfect flow state. And it's exciting for me because typically, I'll give you an example of what happens, not even every day, but sometimes, multiple times a day is, I'm called to the operating room. If I go into the operating room, it's because it's a very high risk delivery with a small premature baby. Some of these are not bigger than the size of your iPhone 6 Plus. You go in and it's not like ER or scrubs on television where the doctor grandly walks in, can yell out five orders, and the nurses go running at his back and call and do it. Everything is hitting the fan. Everybody's panicking. It's a baby with no heart rate. The moment I walk into the operating room, the dad will come shake my shoulders. Dr. Ron, do something. My daughter is not breathing. Her heart is not beating. In all of this, you have about 60 seconds. At the most, if you're lucky, 90 seconds to put a breathing tube down the baby and then connect the baby to a source of oxygen. The problem is 
your vocal cords, my vocal cords, if you make a shape like this from your finger, they're that big. So it's relatively easy to put in a laryngoscope, which is a fiber optic light source, raise the tongue, see the vocal cords, and put the breathing tube through. For a premature baby, if you make this tiny little diamond between your fingers, it's half a millimeter by half a millimeter. That's the diameter of a baby's vocal cords. Uh. And there are no second chances. You're there, everybody's looking at you, expecting you to get life into this baby. We look confident half the time, but it is very scary. The heart is always pounding, you know, because you never yeah. know how, whether you're going to walk out from the operating room Mm. being successful or not. And through all of this, you insert the breathing tube into that little half millimeter by half millimeter gap. If you miss, you go into the esophagus, the foot pipe, and you lose the baby. Mm. And there are no second chances. So it's as much, I believe that if our own life depends on what we do in 90 seconds, it's stressful. It's far mm. more stressful when somebody else's life depends on whether you can perform yeah. in an operating room or in a delivery room. Yeah. And if that somebody else is a little baby, it makes it even more challenging. And not only that, as the team lead, we have to multitask. So as I'm putting the breathing tube in, I have to tell my resident, John, start chest compressions. I have to tell my nurse, Jane, start pull up epinephrine and give me like three cc's of epinephrine to inject into the baby. And the worse the situation, the calmer your voice has to be. But the most incredible thing is if you get it in place, the magic of life happens. Put the vocal cords, put the breathing tube through the vocal cords, connect the breathing tube to oxygen, start squeezing the bag. From literally a dead baby, the baby becomes pink, the heart rate starts going up. She lets out a loud cry. She'll get enough strength half the time that she might even yank out the breathing wow. tube, let out a beautiful cry, and life comes back into this world, you know? Wow. At this time, this is where the meditation helps because there is no point in thinking, oh my God, what if I don't succeed, you know? So here, this is the ultimate meditation. Even talking about that is where the meditator, the object of meditation, and the process of meditation all combines into one continuum, you know? At this time, there is no baby, there is no me. You are one with whatever you're doing. This is the ultimate flow state, and it's well worth it. It's so beautiful when life comes back, when you achieve this flow state. And I have been very lucky that through the years that I have been practicing newborn medicine, I have not lost a baby, at least due to inability to put a breathing tube in. And I'm very thankful for that. And wow, this is definitely absolutely. where the calmness, the meditation, the equanimity comes into play. And this is not like once in a lifetime thing. This is almost every day, many times, several times a day, wow. in and out. But again, it's beautiful. Just that joy in that family's eyes yeah. when you bring a baby back into this world is worth everything that we put into it. Yeah, I'm sure. So we're talking about meditation. How long have you been dedicated to your meditation practice? Was it always a part of your life or did you pick it up later on in your life? Thankfully, it's been a part of my life since I was a kid, and that's mainly because of my father, because he's an atomic scientist. And many, many years ago, even before I was born, he was able to prove that through regular practice of meditation, productivity went up 65% and conflict came down 80% just by 20 minutes of meditation every day. Uh. He introduced the science of meditation to the atomic uh, community in Mumbai, in India, 
and he is my role model. So I was always surrounded by books on meditation, yoga, enlightenment. Not that I read any of that. I was terribly shy as a teenager and not much into any of these books. But I really feel that even just being surrounded by this energy starts making a difference. He made me do my first yoga teacher's training course when I was, I think, about 12 or 11 oh, years wow. old, which wow. I did. Not that I practice yoga that much now, but I do meditate and do pranayam, which is the yogic breathing, a lot more than formal yoga exercises, but absolutely. So it's probably since I was a child that at least the introduction was there to all of this. And do you practice different types of meditation or what kind of meditation do you do? Absolutely. I'm very experimental with meditation and I'm very light with it. Depending on the state of mind, I practice different levels of meditation. The ultimate meditation, I feel, the deepest meditation is where the meditator, the object of meditation, and the process of meditation all merges into one, and there is nothing else. But to reach that state, we need ladders. And so if it's a day where I have been very busy in the intensive care unit, I come back home, and if I start thinking silent meditation, my mind is a monkey. It's jumping up yeah. and down. It's telling me, are you kidding? What yeah. silent meditation? Right now my mind is swimming. Yeah. That's where the chanting might come in. That's where even a guided meditation, there are so many wonderful podcasts out there that walk you through meditations depending on how much time you have. So that comes in. Music meditation comes in. And these are to center yourself and to mm -hmm. focus the mind. Once the mind is focused, then rather than saying it aloud or listening to a podcast, it becomes silent meditation. And then ultimately, once the mind is aligned and equanimous and stable, then it becomes the ultimate, which is the thought of who am I, where am I coming from, where am I headed? This is the self-inquiry. This is one of the strongest methods of meditation. There was a very enlightened person called Ramana Maharshi in South India. He died in 1950. And uh, he taught mainly through silence. Who am I? You know, And go into the source, the deepest root source of your thinking, of your ego, and question yourself right there. And this, I feel, is the ultimate meditation and a very, very powerful meditation through silence. In the West, we all love to talk. We talk, 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 keep talking. Mm -hmm. And we think that silence is a form of weakness, a sign of vulnerability, and not really. Silence is the ultimate language of the gods, as a whole bunch of people have said, including Rumi, you know? And that is absolutely right. So depending on the situation, the meditation is light and I play about with it. But if I reach a stage where I can do deep meditation, then I'm into deep, silent meditation. So I'm curious, because I... I meditate a little bit. I do more self-hypnosis. But when you, at, when you say that asking who am I is the biggest question or the biggest form of meditation, what's the answer that you get? I am so happy you asked that because <laughs> this is actually not a question which begets an answer because the <laughs> who am I, this method of self-inquiry, is just to follow your chain of thoughts. Who am mm. I? Where are my thoughts coming from? And the moment you realize that your thoughts are arising from a source that is the mind or the intellect, which is different from who you really are. Many times we mm -hmm. identify yeah. ourselves with our thought. So the purpose of who am I is not a intellectual dissertation, a self-dissertation right. to find out who you are, but just to say, where is this thought coming from? Mm. Trace the root of the thought. And the ultimate meditation, the strongest one I feel is the heart meditation, where you let the consciousness yes. and the mind mm -hmm. sink into the heart and then look at your thought process. 
It has to be non-judgmental. The mind needs to be like a movie screen. There's floods portrayed on the screen. There's fire on the screen. At the end of it, the movie is done. The screen is still pristine. It wasn't burnt. It didn't get wet. Similarly, we should have the capacity for dispassionate, non-judgmental observation of our own thinking. And this, I feel, is the ultimate meditation. And you meditate every day? I would love to say that I meditate every day and most of the days I meditate. If my goal is to meditate every day, I know I will meditate at least five to six days a week. Right. That I makes me feel so much better. Because <laughs> I try to meditate every day too, but there are just times where I just it get, I fall off of it. And sometimes I'll only meditate like three times a week. Because, I mean, I don't know. Life gets in the way, right? Absolutely. Or, but you know, Genevieve, the most interesting thing is that at the end of the day, at the end of a busy, hectic day in the neonatal intensive care unit, you sometimes have the spent, burnt out feeling. Mm -hmm. And I know exactly those days where I have spent even five minutes meditating in the morning, there is an incredible difference lasting all day to the end of the day. You know, yeah. so it's an investment mm -hmm. worth it. And the coolest thing about meditation, as opposed to exercise, going to the gym and, you know, like working out, which has its place. Of course, these yeah. are all different branches of the same thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But the coolest thing about meditation is the greatest bang for the buck is in the initial phases of meditation. So you get the maximum effect very soon after you start meditating if you're doing it sincerely, as opposed to almost any form of training, self-training, where the more you practice, the more you get the results. Mm. Here, of course, practice and discipline is needed, but you see the results far quicker than anything else. So yeah. that's a very beautiful thing about meditation. So how long do you meditate for? It depends on the time that I have available, sometimes just for five minutes. And if I have the luxury of time, then up to an hour mm. and sometimes far longer. I have played about with this in my journeys in the Himalayas. Yeah. So I locked myself in a cave for 10 days in deep meditation at 15,000 feet altitude in the Himalayas. I would go out, get food, and come back. It's not like 10 continuous days. But having said <laughs> I was that... Wondering. <laughs> I was wondering that, too. So absolutely. Oh, my God. Yes, yes, yes. But having said that... I'd deep, be so hungry. You know, oh, know totally hungry. Or maybe not alive. Yeah, that too. <laughs> so absolutely, yes. But it was exciting, and that's where I realized the ultimate key to meditation is also self-acceptance and self-surrender. Because... Mm. If we think people are scary during this time of meditating in this dark cave, you can at least run away from scary people. But the scariest things on earth are your own thoughts when they come up from the deepest recesses of your mind. Mm -hmm. And they are a part of you. So there has to be utter self-acceptance, utter self-surrender to yourself as a person. But the most incredible thing is that when you accept who you are, when you open up your conditioning and surrender yourself, to who you are, you find yourself in a very strong place and you're one with the energy of the universe when you do that. Is meditation for our viewers and our listeners and for people who are new to this, meditation, it doesn't always have to be spiritual, right? It can be a little bit, I mean, I, it's very spiritual for me. <laughs> um, it's, it's a spiritual practice for me, but it goes hand in hand with mindfulness, right? Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, there does not need to be anything spiritual at all about meditation. You are absolutely right. You hit the nail on the head that you can just be mindful mm -hmm. about what you're doing. 
you could always say, yes, my art is a meditation. My work is my meditation. This question I asked when I was in one of my journeys in the Himalayas, I have been lucky enough to go to the Himalayas over 17 times. Last month when I was at Mount Kailash in Tibet in the Himalayas was my 18th visit to the Himalayas. And I have been lucky enough to be on Mount Everest four times. I asked this question, exactly this very same question of one of the enlightened people who were meditating out there in the caves. And they said, Nitin, absolutely, your work can be your meditation. Your art can be your meditation. Your whole life can be a meditation. But he asked me, he asked me a counter question. He said, where do you get yogurt from? He expected a beautiful <laughs> homemade answer. I told him the supermarket. He said, okay, fine. Let me backtrack is what he told me. If you were to make yogurt at home, how would you do it? Then right. luckily my mom used to do it. So I remember, otherwise I don't think many people might necessarily know. Right. At least I wouldn't unless I were like born and brought up in India. Yeah. Is that you put, uh, you take milk, put a little bit of yogurt in it, leave it in the corner in a cool place, entirely undisturbed. And a few hours later, the whole milk has become yogurt. And similarly, therefore, the mind, no matter if we call activity meditation, doing what we do as art, as meditation, that's all fine. But the mind still needs quietness. The mm -hmm. mind still needs this stillness, this tranquility. And that can be achieved through even a little bit of quiet time and just focusing on your breath. Here again, there does not absolutely need to be anything spiritual or religious about it. I do what is called as hourglass meditation, even when I am in between babies in my clinic. We have a lovely high-risk clinic where what we do is our tiny little premature babies, some of them literally this tiny. They are not bigger than your iPhone 6 Plus is the analogy I love to give. Ah. They go home ultimately, of course, and then we follow them up to a year of age in our high-risk clinic. It's incredible to see these little girls come in holding mommy's hand and sometimes oh. a little flower in their hands. This is for the doctor that saved my life. And it's oh. just too cute Melts for words. Oh, absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely. So it's a very interesting thing that when you when you look at all of this, you know, this is the ultimate meditation, if you will, is when you, you do not have to look at the effect of whatever you're doing. You don't have to look at an end result, but just be in the moment and do it. So in going back right. to the, my main point, so sometimes in between babies, I have about two to three minutes. And even in that time, I have a little one minute hourglass and I just turn that hourglass over. So for a minute, as the sand flows, I just look at it and center myself by taking deep breaths. So even that can be the meditation. So it can be as little as one minute or as much as 10 days. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so there is no time frame. And also, I think it is very important to not give yourself a time frame. The mind is a monkey and the mind has inertia. The moment you tell yourself, aha, I'm going to get up today morning and from today onwards, minimum 10 minutes of meditation. God forbid you wake up and you find out you have eight minutes, your mind is going to say, aha, Nitin, your 10 minute threshold is gone. Mm -hmm. Better make your strong coffee, glug down right. that coffee, go drive from Staten Island to Brooklyn to your hospital yeah. and honk anybody who comes in the way. So, <laughs> so exactly. So the moment you feel so no matter how much ever time you might have, you can meditate in that time. Even as little as one minute, you can do it. Having said that, 
what is recommended is definitely for a beginner to at least do 10 minutes. 10 yeah. minutes is nothing in this day and age, you know. 10 minutes of meditation, and if you feel like it, gradually increase the practice to a longer time frame. Anything that is compatible with our work and whatever we have to do. But definitely a minimum of 10 minutes is advisable. Why is it 10 minutes for a beginner? The reason is because it inculcates discipline, because it definitely needs discipline. See, you have the right brain and the left brain, right? And it's very interesting. When I do tours at the Rubin Museum, I love to look at the, the neuroscience behind a lot of the paintings and discuss where art and science talk to each other through the medium of metaphors, the medium of beauty, and the common talking points between these two. And there is therefore Tara, who is the female manifestation of the Buddha, who is very much the right brain. She's love, compassion, kindness, and courage. And of course, the left brain, the masculine energy, method, and discipline. So this is where the 10 minutes comes in. It's good to have the discipline of at least a certain time frame, yeah. no matter how creative you are, because it gives you some sort of a direction to go in. Mm -hmm. And this is what makes it very, very interesting. One of the Buddha's disciples actually asked him this question once. He said, Master, you talk so much about letting go, about uh, not having aims and desires, yet you tell us that this is the practice. Why are you talking about this practice? And why are you giving us something which is a practice when you are, on the other hand, telling us that, no, you have to let go and just go free flow? Right. And then the Buddha said, no. The greatest distinction, for example, if you are at sea, the difference is that between the anchor and the rudder, you know? The anchor is your unnecessary attachment to superficial, impermanent things, right? This is the one where if your anchor is deep, no matter where you are trying to sail, if your anchor is deep into the ocean, the ship is only going to go round and round the anchor. But you do need to have free rein in pulling up the anchor, but you do need to fix the rudder in the direction that you want to go. So once you are able to pull up the anchor of excessive attachment to material things, set your rudder of discipline to where you want to go, then your ship will sail in the direction that you want it to on the path of enlightenment. So therefore, a certain time frame is necessary. Doesn't even have to be 10 minutes, it can be more than that. Mm -hmm. Or as I mentioned, it could even be a minute if we find the 10 minutes as a constraint. But it is definitely good to have a recommended time which the mind can latch on to. And 10 minutes is kind of like a middle path, intermediate time, which is not too much or too little. What on earth inspired you to climb Mount Everest four times? <laughs> <laughs> it has been a great journey. One of my greatest inspirations have been, there are three people who have inspired me the most. One is my cousin. His name is Arun Ron. He has been living under a tree and meditating in the Himalayas. So last year marked the 25th year that he meditated under the tree. And he lives under the tree out there. <laughs> he left to the mountains as a teenager to the Himalayas from a very well-off family in Bangalore in South India, just walked. There was nothing which triggered it or precipitated it. He just walked into the mountains. And then he's been living there now for a while. So he was one of the people, he has renounced all worldly ties for most of it, but he does visit me off and on in uh, New York. And uh, he told me that I've seen you hiking and trekking from your Brown University days and from the days that you have been in England, which is where I did my pediatric residency. 
But he said, you don't know what a life-changing journey is till you have been to the Himalayas. The other one is a very, very close friend of mine from Nepal who totally seconded what he was saying. But the third one, she passed away of breast cancer about five years ago now. Her name was Sue Morrow Flanagan, and she was one of the chief reporters for the New York Times. One of the most incredible people ever. And she used to look at me and say, Nitin, go to the Himalayas, go to the mountains. It will change your life. And for me, I'm a critical care physician. It's not like a talk show where, oh, this changed my life and, you know, something <laughs> happened and the whole life was transformed. For me, I'm very pragmatic about it. But when three people who I take very seriously told me to do it, I went and did it. So in yeah. six months and coincidentally enough, the, all the three happened to tell this to me at very similar times. Oh, wow. And so I ended up doing my first journey, which was a hike to the base camp of Mount Everest which is also pretty challenging. It's 18,500 feet that yeah. you walk to, which is higher than the summit of the highest mountain of the Alps. That's when I looked at Mount Everest. The actual name for Mount Everest, she's called Chomolungma, Mother Goddess of the Earth, because she is the ultimate divine feminine energy which radiates out. And the coolest thing you know about Everest is when you go to the Everest base camp, you don't even see her. She's very laid back, very demure. She hides among other mountains. So you have to climb another mountain to get a glimpse, a tiny glimpse of the peak of Everest, which is an incredible metaphor. We are all talkers. We go out there. We push ourselves out so much. She's so quiet, but yet she's so powerful. Mm -hmm. So I started loving the Himalayas, and this is when I started my climbs on Everest. The biggest reason that I love the Himalayas is because they are so massive. Like I was mentioning, the base of Mount Everest, 18,500 feet approximately, is higher than the summit of the highest mountain of the, uh, in the Alps, which is Mont Blanc at 16,200. So Everest base camp at 18,500, and the summit of Mont Blanc at 16,200 feet. And the Himalayas are so massive. It's like they're looking at you and laughing. And they are telling <laughs> us, you know, if you think you are important, we have been standing here 350 million years and we don't even know you exist. <laughs> and I believe, you know, when the ego is, your ego is entirely pulverized, entirely crushed at that time, right? Yeah. And I feel that when the ego is shattered, that's when the real creativity arises because yeah. that's when our conditioning melts away. And that's one of the big reasons why I go to the Himalayas. I love all mountains. I've been to the Rockies. I've been in the Sierra Nevadas. I've hiked and climbed in the Alps. But I find the Himalayas special just because of their absolutely massive scale. And you feel that you are one with the energy of the universe because your conditioning is gone. Your fears, your inhibition, everything is melted away. And that's why. We should go. <laughs> You're more than welcome to accompany me on the journey in the mountains, uh, absolutely. I don't know, I'm kind of inspired. <laughs> <laughs> you go ahead, Julie. <laughs> you go ahead. I have a question. Go for it. <laughs> so, I loved hearing the story about the infamous mountain dog. Oh, yeah. Can you tell that story? Oh, this was very interesting, and I am still in awe at the power of love and compassion, and I'll tell you why. I did tell you that many years ago I was uh, in a cave for 10 days in deep meditation on my journey to self-discovery, if you want to call it that. But it wasn't enough. And as if it wasn't enough, the next year I said, no, I have to do something else. So I went up to 15,000 feet altitude again in the Himalayas and then lived under a tree. 
this was a giant Himalayan cedar. They are massive, these trees. And I was living between the roots of this tree, no tent, no sleeping bag, entirely at the mercy of nature. Oh my God. And then it was very scary. I used to forage out in the forest to see what food I could get, light a campfire by night. The scary thing is at the end of the first night, the bears started coming close. The Himalayan bear is bigger than the grizzly. They are the second largest bears in the world. And if they do not like you, you will probably not exist within seconds of that. <laughs> and the problem is, I mean, I did have a little pink whistle that I could blow, but the whistle wouldn't have helped at this tree where there was no human habitation for several miles down. Mm. And I did not want my legacy to be just a little pink whistle left behind. I wanted it to be something more than that, maybe yeah. something like saving lives or at least that, okay, he died climbing Mount Everest and fell down, <laughs> but not that he was eaten by a bear and left a little pink whistle behind. So, <laughs> but then, so I was really very scared. And then as I went deep into meditation that night, I heard a low growl next to me and I saw this wild mountain dog. He probably had never seen a human being all his life. The mountain dogs, this is almost close to 15,000 feet altitude in desolate high Himalayas. The, the mountain dog is closer to the lupus family, the dog fam the wolf family, than the canis family, the dog family. And he was growling and my heart was in my mouth. I thought, okay, you know, not the bears, but this is how it's going to end. I don't know how I mustered the courage, but in my deep meditation, my hand went on his shoulder. I could feel him initially growl and tense up. And then within the next few seconds, I could feel him utterly relax and surrender. And he stayed with me for the 10 days that I was under this tree and protected me from the bears. It was incredible. There was not much interaction between us, except we just used to look at each other. And I'm mm -hmm. sure we smiled. I know I smiled and I think he smiled back. Wow. And at the end of 10 days, I had to come back down to New York City, to back to Brooklyn <laughs> to practice. And so we just looked at each other, said a silent goodbye, and then parted ways because the high mountain dogs cannot live, survive mm. at a lower altitude. But this was one of the greatest lessons to me that love and compassion, the power of love is not just restricted to human beings. If you are able to go into yourself with true unencumbered love, it very, very easily percolates into the animal kingdom. And this was one of the great lessons that I learned from this journey. That's wow. amazing. That's incredible. How far, how far away from you was he or she? <laughs> he was uh, he was right next to me all the time. So he used to sit next to me. We used to light a campfire at night. When I used to go hunt for food, he was actually very kind because there there are tiny little river rats which come up to that altitude up in mm. the Himalayas. So he got me a couple of dead rats intending to share his lunch with me and I politely, oh, nice. absolutely, and I politely declined. So he knew, he got the idea after the first few times. But each time I used to go and look for plants, anything that I think was edible that I could eat, he used to come with me. So and he was pretty much with he, me all the time. He was your buddy. He was my buddy, not only yeah. that, and this is crazy, is the first night he actually saw me sleeping, my head was on the hard ground, because as I said, there was no tent, no sleeping bag, nothing. 
the next night i felt a nudge under my head and he was offering his back as a pillow Aww. it was crazy it was unbelievable wow. this is where it has been very humbling for me because we are so pragmatic with science we want reasoning we want method for everything which makes sense i am a man of science and it is very very important to find science in everything but these things even looking at the power of love just the power of compassion it humbles you by telling mm-hmm. you that maybe there are some aspects that science as we know it now has not yet discovered or is in the process of discovering because there are so many more and more incredible things happening now emphasizing the power of love and compassion like now we know that we have an incredible program at my hospital it's called the baby cuddler program where we have oh, you know yes, the volunteer cuddlers oh yeah. my goodness yes we have the volunteers color the volunteer cuddlers come in uh-huh. and just cuddle and play with these premature babies and there is such a strong scientific evidence these babies have been followed into their teenage from my alma mater at brown as well as many other institutions and they know that in the neonatal intensive care unit when these tiny little babies are cuddled they have a much shorter stay they have much bigger greater immunity they go home much quicker and even as teenagers they are better balanced so there is more and more research coming into this and also looking at the neuroscience of love and compassion mm-hmm. which is incredibly fascinating as i wrote this book with my dad i found myself doing a lot of research on this and i was amazed at how much is out there yeah. in the realm of solid science with the power and the energy of love and compassion can you talk a little bit about the book that you're writing with your dad I am very excited about the book because it is the science of pranayam which is the yoga breathing uh-huh. and that itself is a form of meditation. I think way cooler than that is working again with my dad. I was going to no, say that's no. a pretty fun collaboration. Oh my god, fun quote unquote because my dad could scold me again like he did in the school days because he used to try to attempt to teach me mathematics. He's oh, an no. atomic scientist and he's incredible at that. And I used to doze off during half his explanation because they just used to be too complicated for me to understand as a school child. Yeah. So this was his getting back at me where he could scold me and say Nathan, you need to meet this deadline. And so so he got a chance to scold me again but i think it was absolutely incredible to work with my dad again yeah. on this great project and uh, he's still very active as a yoga teacher and a meditation teacher uh, in bombay mumbai mm-hmm. as it is now called in india and it was incredible so we, my dad is of course the first author because he has over 50 years of experience in all of this even way before of course i was born and so it's incredible that all his life study in in the field of pranayam the yogic breathing is in this book and i provide the medical aspects to it my dad is not foreign to book publishing so it was really wonderful that he could go through it again because his book on atomic science which is in collaboration with the defense research lab in the united states in albuquerque new mexico that came out about 8 months ago and that is like a giant textbook of which i do not understand a word <laughs> okay <laughs> all about atomic physics so this is his second book that would be uh, hopefully coming out now we are in the process of finding publishers who oh, would uh, who would be able to do it it already has the manuscript is written and it has great reviews from a couple of well known authors who have already reviewed it so i'm very very excited okay. and now the hunt for the publishers is on which is interesting but this is something which has my dad's brainchild 
and uh, something that I have collaborated in, which is very, very close to my heart, much for personal reasons, because my dad is the first author, and also because I feel that this will be of a lot of benefit to people to look at the solid science behind yoga and meditation and to explore that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I think that's so important to incorporate those things along with science. Also, I want to hear more about your the studies that you're doing with uh, mindfulness and mountain mountain sickness. This was that's in the Himalayas as well too. Yeah, isn't oh, I it? love the Himalayas. Yeah. Any excuse <laughs> I want to go to the Himalayas, <laughs> I will go there. You I go. Did. I think I think one of the first times I met you, you you invited me to go. Exactly. <laughs> you invited yes, me to go to the absolutely. Himalayas. I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> Totally. I mean, there is magic in those mountains. If yeah. you haven't been, you should go. It's not even a question. You should well, just jump into it go. and go. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And there was a very interesting incident that happened a few years ago. I was doing a solitary hike in the Himalayas. This was two weeks of a solo hike on a remote glacier up in the high mountains, no human being in sight, just a walking meditation. And I am in six layers of clothes. The temperatures are way below freezing here. And I am suddenly staring because I see this group of monks turn the corner and start walking. They are chanting, they are singing, and they are walking on this glacier. It was almost like a 12-day glacier hike. No clothes except a loincloth. No shirts, no pants, just that loincloth. No shoes, no slippers, no sandals. And they are walking on this glacier. I'm looking and I'm thinking, hey, I'm a medical doctor. This is not <laughs> making sense to me. And then I stopped them because my medical diagnosis was that maybe they have frostbite, they have gangrene of the feet. And so their nerve endings are obtunded and therefore they cannot feel. Right. And so I said, hey, can I please examine your feet? And enlightened <laughs> people, the cool thing, this is a secret. They are really the coolest dudes around, the really enlightened people. They are not like serious people with a lot of ego and arrogance. So these cool dudes told me, absolutely no problem, do what you want to do. And I examined their feet and they were entirely normal. This was the first time that the power of meditation came to my mind. And I said, oh my God, there are so many as facets of science that maybe we don't still know about. And this stimulated me to start the research project in the Himalayas. Mm -hmm. It's a cool project because it basically deals with mountain sickness. As a doctor, for me, it's exciting to be able to save lives, which I do on a daily basis in the newborn intensive care unit. But it would be even more exciting, I thought, to be able to do it at high altitude as the expedition doctor. So I started this research project and the main purpose was to predict mountain sickness. What happens is when you go to a very high altitude, the oxygen level keeps falling and then the body needs to acclimatize to it and it doesn't do it all the time. Sometimes it's very mild. Like for example, today, tomorrow morning, if I were to take a flight from here to Denver, Colorado, I would be quite dizzy for at least a few hours to maybe even like half a day and feel a bit woozy and then I would recover. This is the mildest form of mountain sickness where the body is adjusting to the low oxygen. However, there are two fatal forms. They are called HACE and HAPE. HACE is H-A-C-E, which stands for High Altitude Cerebral Edema. And HAPE, H-A-P-E, is High Altitude Pulmonary Edema. What happens is the brain loses the ability to acclimatize, opens up, the blood vessels open up, and the brain gets filled with fluid. 
and then the person goes into seizures, goes into a coma and dies. The same with the lungs. If you have pulmonary edema, the blood vessels of the lungs open up. It's like trying to breathe with a bucket of, with your head immersed in a bucket of water if you uh. have pulmonary edema. It's very scary. And these are among the highest causes of death in the mountains. So I thought, let me do a research project to be able to predict it. And it's actually very interesting. We are doing ultrasound scans of the eyes to look at the optic nerve sheath diameter. The optic nerve is surrounded by a sheath which is directly connected to the sheath of the brain. So if the brain fills up with fluid, the first thing that expands is the optic nerve sheath. And it's a non-invasive thing. All it requires is a little portable ultrasound machine, which me and my team take up to the mountains. It's six seconds, ultrasound of the eyes, and immediately you have the optic nerve sheath there. And if the sheath is increasing disproportionately as you're going up the diameter, then you know that, hey, even though you look okay now, I would be able to tell the mountaineer, you are already in early cerebral edema, and so stay here, don't give up your journey. Stay here maybe for a longer time till your body acclimatizes, or go to a lower altitude to acclimatize better and then do your journey, but do not go up right now because all the red flags are against it. So is it just that your body has to get used to that? Your body has to get used to where you are? Correct. Okay. And which is very interesting also because uh, people ask me as a neonatologist, as a newborn baby specialist, what the heck does this have to do with mountaineering? Why the heck would you suddenly go and uh, climb mountains? And what is very interesting is as you go up high on a mountain, the oxygen level keeps falling. And the nature of your hemoglobin starts changing. Your red blood cells start multiplying to grab onto enough hemoglobin molecules because your oxygen level is low. So enough oxygen molecules need to be grabbed onto by the hemoglobin. This is called a shift to the left is the medical term for it. And which is very interesting because this environment at high altitude with low oxygen is exactly what a fetus has in the womb. Because the mom does not have much oxygen in there. The oxygen level is very low for the fetus. So the fetal hemoglobin is a very special hemoglobin, which grabs onto every molecule of oxygen available. So essentially, as you're going up at high altitude, you're becoming a fetus. Because your physiology wow. becomes closer to fetal physiology. Wow. And what is fascinating is some of the initial studies on fetal physiology was done on the blood of mountaineers after they had climbed a high mountain and come back. So that is part of the research is to do the ultrasound scans. But what is also interesting to predict mountain sickness, we are doing neurocognitive function studies to see if cognition reduces. And this is a part close to my heart. We are also looking at the effect of pranayam, yoga breathing, to see if it prevents or averts mountain sickness. And mm -hmm. so far, the results that we have, they look extremely positive and very promising. So where do you see this going. I mean, once you can predict, I mean, that opens up a whole, you got to teach people how to do it and <laughs> send them out there, right? Yeah, which is interesting because the people who actually do it on the project are not doctors. Well, they I don't do, there are already people that do it. In the sense that we train them, the training is very quick. It's just oh. like maybe about four to six weeks of ultrasound training. And uh, I do it with my colleague, who is the vice chair of emergency medicine. And he's also very, very passionate about the mountains. And many of my clients, he comes with me on the mountains. So we train the people because the whole idea is not to have somebody with the degree of an MD going up there who will be able to do this. This has to come out. It's a very great question you ask because it has to come out to the lay people. Right. So it's just an ultrasound machine, little bit of training to figure out 
how to know that the nerve sheath is expanding, and almost anybody can do it. But it has deeper implications also because I feel that if we look at the effect of pranayam, the yoga breathing, to prevent it, this is again very solid science. And this makes it even stronger for us through the role of mindfulness, through all of, uh, all of the meditation that we do, that it really is effective in preventing disease. So this is just one aspect, it's one spoke in the wheel. But even if this brings home, it creates one little foundation, one little brick on which more research can be built about how meditation can avert disease, which there is a lot of research going on right now, that would be well worth it, all this that I am putting in. All the funding is coming from my pocket. This is my labor of love because wow. I am climbing, and this yeah. is something I'm doing because I am passionate about it. So it's not a funded project, an official project from a university or anything, but there is enough passion that I am lucky enough that I get incredibly passionate people on these journeys, yeah. and we are able to make a difference because I think, yes, you require knowledge, you require a good foundation of science always, because that is the left brain, the method and the discipline part of it. There will be no method otherwise, but you do require tons of passion and creativity and just enthusiasm. And I believe that if that is there, a lot of the research would be very successful without necessarily only having theoretical knowledge. The passion has to be there to make it happen, yeah. apart oh, from knowledge. I believe that about anything you do yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. in yeah. life, yes. you know, yeah. you uh -huh. have to have that behind it. I have no doubt it's going to be very successful. Thank you. All right. So I have a question about your cousin. Um, so you said he lives under a tree. <laughs> Does he have relationships? Does he have people he interacts with or is he just living under a tree? He's just living under a tree. And secondly, he's going to hate me for this because he's extremely <laughs> introverted. And then we have to talk about him because he does not like being talked about much. But having said that, he's an incredibly cool person. He has been my guide and uh, in a way my teacher for many of the things in my journey towards, I guess, finding who I am. He has been living under this tree now for, as I'd mentioned, over 25 years. And he just lives under this tree. There's a beautiful hot spring near his tree and he has a bath there every morning. Wow. Sometimes the, it's very remote from the villages nearby, but the villagers, even the shepherds, as they pass by, the shepherds will stitch a nice warm jacket and present it to him as they're going up. The villagers might give him some food. But if not, he's still perfectly content and would just go deep into meditation. He does interact with people around, but not a lot. He's definitely extremely introverted. He's not a talker. Unlike me, I'm the counterpart which, when he visits me in New York. Sometimes it's so wonderful because we are connected very beautifully with our brainwaves, I like to think. I feel like, oh, his name is Arun, so Arun needs to come here. It'll be so beautiful to have him here. So he'll give me a missed call from a borrowed cell phone from some villager <laughs> when he goes down to the village, and I will know it is him because it will be a missed call from a remote Himalayan Indian village number. And so I'll call that number back, and he will be standing there waiting for that call. And then I say, Nitin, okay, Aww. 
I need to come there. And then I'll arrange for him to come. He'll be with me for like a month or a um, couple of months. And we do a lot of hiking when he's here. We have hiked the North Pole through Alaska. We have hiked all the national parks in Utah. We have hiked wow. remote Californian forests. So we do hiking here too. But it's just so beautiful to be in his presence. Yeah. But he just lives under the tree. He loves to travel. There was an interesting thing is that many, many years ago, uh, there was a man from Mongolia, a nomad, who wanted to come up into the Himalayas. And he met Arun and then he got into this conversation and he looked at him and said, who are you? Just You are just looking at me. I'm finding all the answers to all my questions. And he told him, one day if I, I'm starting a business of my own when I go back to Mongolia, one day when I make it big, I will send you a ticket and I would love you to come and spend two weeks with me. And Arun said, fine. He says fine to everything because he has no <laughs> schedule. He has no concept of time or space. Right. And he accepts everything. <laughs> 22 years later, you know, there is this. And this is addressed to Arun, the tree, and the rage, the peak of the Himalayas. And he got that letter, which is an incredible credit to the Indian postal system. Absolutely. <laughs> Nobody wow. else here. They would right. say, oh my God, you know, it's so cold up there. Why should I deliver a letter? Yeah. But there would be so many people who meditate under a tree on a peak. You know? Right. They had and to know who it was. They had to know who it was. <laughs> and he made that. It is a one and a half day trek to reach him. Oh it's my not God. Easy. He got the letter and this was a ticket. And he went to Mongolia. Wow. So it was so interesting. And he's purely vegetarian. He's a truly, he's a celibate monk. He's not even like a spiritual monk because he doesn't follow any religious order. I would say he's spiritual, but not religious mm -hmm. because he doesn't necessarily follow any monastic order, but he's just there deep into his own meditation. But he ended up going to Mongolia. And the funniest thing is of all the things in Ulaanbaatar and the Gobi Desert in Mongolia, where it's next to impossible to get vegetarian food, he would always get the best food possible. <laughs> Pure vegetarian food. I don't know how he managed that. Wow. But he came back again with having probably some of the best meals, vegetarian meals you could have had out there. But so I feel that when there is pure compassion and love in the heart, and if you have an unselfish motive to making your internal journey, the universe turns around and puts everything that is beautiful, bright, and loving right back into you. And this is a beautiful rule of the universe, you know. Yeah. Go into yourself, release your attachment to impermanent, superficial things, material things, money, wealth, beauty, all this. This is also, I guess, Buddhism 101, is the Buddha said we are unhappy because we put all our happiness onto these impermanent things. The thing is that then they will rise up and our happiness will peak up when these things peak. But the moment it crashes, our status, our money, the beauty with age, the moment it crashes, our happiness crashes down. So flip the paradigm. I don't think the Buddha said flip the paradigm, but <laughs> one has to <laughs> flip the paradigm, go into yourself and find your love and compassion in your heart. Love is the strongest energy that makes the world go round. And if we are able to do that, we talk so much of love and compassion. I believe it needs to begin with self-love and self-compassion. If we yeah. cannot love ourselves, there is no way that we will be able to truly love other people. Yeah. The Lai Lama gave a beautiful example of a vessel only half filled with water. You know, if the vessel is only half full of water, you go out there, all it does is make a lot of noise, but no real water comes out to quench people's thirst. Maybe we need to take a deep breath, step back, fill ourselves up with the water of true love and self-compassion. Let it overflow, and even without the arrogant intention that I want to bring about a change, the change automatically starts happening around you. And I believe that my cousin Arun also truly embodies 
this. Yeah. Yeah. What is your, we asked this in, in a few of our um, interviews, is what is your hope for the future in terms of meditation and mindfulness and the practice? I'm just going to quote Ramana Maharshi on this. He was the enlightened person that I mentioned who was in this little place in South India who died in 1950, probably one of the most enlightened people ever. And he said the greatest benefit that you can render the world is your own enlightenment. And I think we all need to work on ourselves to find our peace, to find our inner love, compassion and happiness. And if we are successful in doing that, we will automatically notice this change happening around us as well. But all we need to focus on is not bother too much about what's happening out there. That doesn't mean we do not fight for what is right. That's very important to fight for what is true and what is right and what is correct, like Mahatma Gandhi did, you know, in all of his nonviolent freedom movement. But it has to come out of a place of deep love and compassion inside you. So yeah. my dream and hope is that all of us would realize the energy and the power of meditation, fill ourselves up with the water of love and compassion, and then just watch the magic happen around us. Absolutely. Love that. Love it. I hope the world listened to that. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Thank, Thank you, you so much for being here. Absolutely. We really appreciate coming. it. Yeah. My pleasure. It was so nice to have you here. Thank you. That completes this episode of The Unexplained Truths. If you enjoyed it, be sure to like, rate, and review this podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you in the next episode. Want more? Head over to our YouTube channel, The Unexplained Truths. Do you or someone you know have an interesting story to tell? If you would like to be on our show, please email us at theunexplainedtruths at gmail.com.